Chapter 9 of The Midnight Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming. Chapter 9 Leoline. In one instant, Sir Norman was on his feet and his hand on his sword. In the tauric darkness, neither the face nor figure of the intruder could be made out, but he merely saw a darker shadow beside him, standing in the sea of darkness. Perhaps he might have thought it a ghost, but that the hand which grasped his shoulder was unmistakably of flesh and blood and muscle, and the breathing of its owner was distinctly audible by his side. "'Who are you?' demanded Sir Norman, drawing out his sword and wrenching himself free from his unseen companion. "'Ah, it is you, is it? I thought so,' said a not unknown voice. "'I have been calling you till I am hoarse, and at last gave it up, and started after you in despair. What are you doing here?' "'You! Ormiston!' exclaimed Sir Norman, in the last degree astonished. "'How? When? What are you doing here?' "'What are you doing here? That's more to the purpose. "'Down flat on your face with your head stuck through that hole. "'What is below there, anyway?' "'Never mind,' said Sir Norman hastily, "'who, for some reason quite unaccountable to himself, "'did not wish Ormiston to see. "'There's nothing there in particular but a lower range of vaults. "'Do you intend telling me what has brought you here?' "'Certainly. The very fleetest horse I could find in the city.' "'Pshaw! You don't say!' exclaimed Sir Norman incredulously. "'But I presume you had some object in taking such a gallop. "'May I ask what? "'Your anxious solicitude on my account, very likely?' "'Not precisely. "'But I say, Kingsley, what light is that shining through there? "'I mean to see.' "'No, you won't,' said Sir Norman rapidly and noiselessly repacing the flag. "'It's nothing, I tell you, but a number of will-o'-the-wisps having a ball.' Finally, and for the last time, Mr. Armiston, will you have the goodness to tell me what has sent you here? Come out to the air, then. I have no fancy for talking in this place. It smells like a tomb. There is nothing wrong, I hope, inquired Sir Norman, following his friend and threading his way gingerly through the piles of rubbish in the profound darkness. Nothing wrong, but everything extremely right. "'Confound this place! It would be easier walking on live eels than through these winding and lumbered passages. Thank the fates! We are through them at last, for there is the daylight, or, rather, the nightlight, and we have escaped without any bones broken.' They had reached the mouldering and crumbling doorway shown by a square of lighter darkness and exchanged the damp, chill atmosphere of the vaults for the stagnant, sultry, open air. Sir Norman, with the notion in his head— that his dwarfish highness might have placed sentinels around his royal residence, endeavored to pierce the gloom in search of them. Though he could discover none, he still thought discretion the better part of valor, and stepped out into the road. "'Now then, where are you going?' inquired Ormiston, for following him. "'I don't wish to talk here. There is no telling who may be listening. Come along.' Armiston glanced back at the gloomy rain looming up like a black specter in the blackness. "'Well, they must have a strong fancy for eavesdropping, I must say. Who would go to that haunted heap to listen? What have you seen there, and where have you left your horse?' "'I told you before,' said Sir Norman, rather impatiently. "'I have seen nothing, at least nothing you would care about, and my horse is waiting for me at the Golden Crown.' "'Very well. 
We have no time to lose, so get there as fast as you can, and mount him and ride, as if the demon were after you back to London. Back to London? Is this man crazy? I shall do no such thing. Let me tell you, tonight. Oh, just as you please, said Ormiston, with a great deal of indifference, considering the urgent nature of his former request. You can do as you like, you know, and so can I, which translated means I will go and tell her you have declined to come. Tell her? Tell whom? What are you talking about? Hang it, man, exclaimed Sir Norman, getting somewhat excited and profane. What are you driving at? Can't you speak out and tell me at once? I have told you, said Ormiston testily, and I will tell you again. She sent me in search of you, and if you don't choose to come, that's your affair and not mine. This was a little too much for Sir Norman's overwrought feelings, and in the last degree of exasperation he laid violent hands on the collar of Ormiston's doublet and shook him as if he would have shaken the name out of a jerk. I tell you what it is, Ormiston, you had better not aggravate me. I can stand a good deal, but I'm not exactly Moses or Job, and you had better mind what you're at. If you don't come to the point at once and tell me who she is, I'll throttle you where you stand, and so give you warning. Half indignant and wholly laughing, Ormiston stepped back out of the way of his excited friend. I cry you mercy in one word, then. I have been dispatched by a lady in search of you, and that lady is... Leoline. It has always been one of the unscrupable mysteries in natural philosophy that I never could fathom why men do not faint. Certain it is, I never yet heard of a man swooning from excess of surprise or joy, and perhaps that may account for Sir Norman's not doing so on the present occasion. But he came to an abrupt standstill in their rapid career, and if it had not been Quite so excessively dark, his friend would have beheld a countenance wonderful to look on in its mixture of utter astonishment and sublime consternation. Leoline, he faintly gasped. Just stop a moment, Ormiston, and say that again, will you? No, said Ormiston, hurrying unconcernedly on. I shall do no such thing, for there is no time to lose, and... If there were, I have no fancy for standing in this dismal road. Come on, man, and I'll tell you as we go. Thus abjured, and seeing there was no help for it, Sir Norman, in a dazed and bewildered state, complied, and Ormiston promptly and briskly relaxed into business. You see, my dear fellow, to begin at the beginning, after you left, I stood at ease at La Masque's door, awaiting that lady's return, and was presently rewarded by seeing her come up with an old woman called Prudence. Do you recollect the woman who rushed screaming out of the house of the dead bride? Yes, yes. Well, that was Prudence. She and La Masque were talking so earnestly, they did not perceive me, and I, well, the fact is, Kingsley, I stayed and listened. Not a very handsome thing, perhaps, but I couldn't resist it. They were talking of someone they called Leoline, and I, in a moment, knew that it was your flame, and that neither of them knew any more of her whereabouts than we did. And yet, La Masque told me to come here in search of her, interrupted Sir Norman. Very true. That was odd, wasn't it? This prudence, it appears, was Leoline's nurse, and La Masque, too, seemed to have a certain authority over her, and between them. 
I learned she was to have been married this very night, and died, or, at least Prudence thought so, an hour or two before the time. Then she was not married, cried Sir Norman in an ecstasy of delight. Not a bit of it, and what is more, didn't want to be. And, judging from the remarks of Prudence, I should say, of the two, rather preferred the plague. Then why was she going to do it? You don't mean to say she was forced. Ah, uh, but I do, though. Prudence owned it with the most charming candor in the world. Did you hear the name of the person she was to have married? asked Sir Norman with kindling eyes. I think not. They called him the Count, if my memory serves me, and Prudence intimated that he knew nothing of the melancholy fate of Mistress Leoline. Most likely it was the person in the cloak and slouched hat we saw talking to the watchman. Sir Norman said nothing, but he thought a good deal, and the burden of his thoughts was an ardent and heartfelt wish that the Count L'Etrange was once more under the swords of the three robbers, and waiting for him to ride to the rescue. That was all. La Masque urged Prudence to go back, continued Ormiston, but Prudence respectfully declined and went her way, bemoaning the fate of her darling. When she was gone, I stepped up to Madame Masque, and that lady's first words of greeting were an earnest hope that I had been edified and improved by what I had overheard. She saw you then, asked Sir Norman. See me? I believe you. She has more eyes than ever Argus had, and each one is as sharp as a cambric needle. Of course I apologized, and so on, and she forgave me handsomely, and then we fell into discoursing. Need I tell you on what subject? Love, of course, said Sir Norman. Yes, mingled with entreaties to take off her mask that would have moved a heart of stone. It moved what was better, the heart of La Masque and Kingsley. She has consented to do it, and she says that if, after seeing her face, if I still love her, she will be my wife. Is it possible? My dear Ormiston, I congratulate you with all my heart. Thank you. After that she left me, and I walked away in such a frenzy of delight that I couldn't have told whether I was treading this earth or the shining stars of the seventh heaven. When, suddenly, there flew past me a figure all in white, the figure of a bride, Kingsley, pursued by an excited mob. We were both near the river, and the first thing I knew, she was plump into it, with the crowd behind, yelling to stop her that she was ill with, of the plague. Great heaven! And was she drowned? No, though it was not her fault. The Earl of Rochester and his page, you remember that page, I fancy, were out in their barge, and the Earl picked her up. Then I got a boat, set out after her, claimed her, for I recognized her, of course, brought her ashore, and deposited her safe and sound in her own house. What do you think of that? Armstrong said Norman, catching him by the shoulder with a very excited face. Is this true? True as preaching, Kingsley, every word of it, and the most extraordinary part of the business is that her dip in cold water has effectually cured her of the plague. Not a trace of it remains. Sir Norman dropped his hand and walked on, staring straight before him, perfectly speechless. In fact, no known language in the world could have done justice to his feelings at that precise period. For three times that night, in three different shapes, had he seen his same Leiline, and at the same moment 
he was watching her decked out in a royal state in the rain ormiston had probably been assisting her from her cold bath in the river thames astonishment and consternation are words altogether too feeble to express his state of mind but one idea remained clear and bright amid all his mental chaos and that was that the leoline he had fallen in love with dead was awaiting him alive and well in london well said ormiston you don't speak what do you think of all this think i can't think i've got past that long ago replied his friend hopelessly did you really say leoline was alive and well and waiting for you yes i did and i repeat it and the sooner you get back to town the sooner you will see her so don't loiter ormiston what do you mean is it possible i can see her to-night yes it is the dear creature is waiting for you even now you see after we got to the house and she had consented to become a little rational mutual explanations ensued by which it appeared she had run away from sir norman kingsley's in a state of frenzy and jumped into the river in a similarly excited state of mind and was most anxious to go down on her pretty knees and thank the aforesaid sir norman for saving her life what could any one as gallant as myself do under these circumstances but offer to set forth in quest of that gentleman and she promptly consented to sit up and wait his coming and dismissed me with her blessing and kingsley i've a private notion she is as deeply affected by you as you are by her for when i mentioned your name she blushed yea verily to the roots of her hair and when she spoke of you couldn't so much as look at me in the face which is you must own a very bad symptom nonsense said sir norman energetically and had it been daylight his friend would have seen that he blushed almost as extensively as the lady she doesn't know me ah doesn't she though that shows all you know about it she has seen you go past the window many and many a time and to see you said ormiston making a grimace under cover of the darkness is to love she has told me so herself what that she loved me exclaimed sir norman his notions of propriety to the last degree shocked by such a revelation not altogether she only looked that but she said she knew you well by sight and by heart too as i inferred from her countenance when she said it there now don't make me talk any more for i have told you everything i know am about horse with my exertions one thing only did she tell you who she was no except that her name was leoline and nothing else which struck me as a bit being slightly improbable doubtless she will tell you everything and one piece of advice i may venture to give you which is you may propose as soon as you like without fear of rejection here we are at the golden crown so go in and get your horse and let us be off all this time ormiston had been leading his own horse by the bridle and as sir norman silently complied with this suggestion in five minutes more they were in their saddles and galloping at breakneck speed toward the city to tell the truth one was not more inclined for silence than the other 
and the profoundest and thoughtfulest silence was maintained till they reached it. One was thinking of Leoline, the other of La Masque. Both were badly in love, and just at that particular moment very happy. Of course the happiness of people in that state never lasts longer than half an hour at a stretch, and then they are plunged back again into misery and distraction. But while it does last, in it very intense and delightful indeed. Our two friends, having drained the bitten, had got to the bottom of the cup, and neither knew that no sooner were the sweets swallowed than it was to be replenished with a doubly bitter dose. Neither of them dismounted till they reached the house of Leyline, and there Sir Norman secured his horse, looked up at it with a beating heart. Not that it was very unusual for his heart to beat, seeing it never did anything else, but on that occasion its motion was so much accelerated that any doctor feeling his pulse might have justly set him down as a bad case of heart disease. A small bright ray of light streamed like a beacon of hope from an upper window, and the lover looked at it as a clouded mariner might at the shining of the north star. "'Are you coming in, Armistan?' he inquired, feeling for the first time in his life almost bashful. "'It seems to me it would only be right, you know.' "'I don't mind going in and introducing you,' said Armistan. "'But after you have been delivered over, you may fight your own battles and take care of yourself. Come on.' The door was unfastened, and Armistan sprang upstairs with the air of a man quite at home, followed more decorously by Sir Norman. The door of the lady's room stood ajar as he had left it, and in answer to his tapping at the chamber door, a sweet feminine voice called, Come in. Ormiston promptly obeyed, and the next instant they were in the room, and in the presence of the dead bride. Certainly she did not look dead, but very much alive. Just then, as she sat in an easy chair, drawn up before the dressing-table, on which stood the solitary lamp that illumined the chamber. In one hand she held a small mirror, or, as it was then called, a sprunking-glass, in which she was contemplating her own beauty, with as much satisfaction as any other pretty girl might justly do. She had changed her drenched dress during Ormiston's absence, and now sat arrayed in a swelling amplitude of rose-colored satin, her hair clasped and bound by a circle of milk-white pearls, and her pale, beautiful face looking ten degrees more beautiful than ever, in contrast with the bright rose silk, shining dark hair, and rich white jewels. She rose up as they entered and came forward with the same glow on her face and the same light in her eyes that one of them had seen before, and stood with drooping eyelashes, lovely as a vision, in the center of the room. "'You see, I have lost no time in obeying your ladyship's commands,' began Armiston, bowing low. "'Mistress Leoline, allow me to present Sir Norman Kingsley.' Sir Norman Kingsley bent almost as profoundly before the lady as the Lord High Chancellor had done before Queen Miranda, and the lady curtsied in return until her pink satin skirt ballooned out all over the floor. It was quite an affecting tableau, and so Armiston felt as he stood eyeing it with preternatural gravity. 
"'I owe my life to Sir Norman Kingsley,' murmured the faint, sweet voice of the lady, "'and could not rest until I had thanked him. "'I have no words to say how deeply thankful and grateful I am.' "'Fairest Leoline, one word from such lips would be enough to repay me, "'had I done a thousandfold more,' responded Norman, "'laying his hand on his heart with another deep genuflection.' "'Very pretty indeed,' remarked Ormiston to himself with a little approving nod. "'But I'm afraid they won't be able to keep it up and go on talking on stilts like that till they have finished. Perhaps they may get on all the better if I take myself off, there being always one too many in a case like this.' Then aloud, "'Madame, I regret that I am obliged to depart, having a most particular appointment, but—' Doubtless my friend will be able to express himself without my assistance. I have the honor to wish you both good night. With which neat and appropriate speech, Ormiston bowed himself out and was gone before Leoline could detain him, even if she had wished to do so. Probably, however, she thought the care of one gentleman sufficient responsibility at once, and she did not look very seriously distressed by his departure, and the moment he disappeared, Sir Norman brightened up wonderfully. It is very discomposing to the feelings to make love in the presence of a third party, and Sir Norman had no intention of wasting his time on anything, and went at it immediately. Taking her hand with a grace that would have beaten Sir Charles Grandison or Lord Chesterfield all to nothing, he led her to a couch, took a seat as near her as was at all polite or proper, considering the brief nature of their acquaintance. The curtains were drawn, the lamp shed a faint light, the house was still, and there was no intrusive papa to pounce down upon them. The lady was looking down and seemed in no way haughty or discouraging, and Sir Norman's spirits went up with a jump to boiling point. Yet the lady, with all her pretty bashfulness, was the first to speak. "'I'm afraid, Sir Norman, you must think this a singular hour to come here, but in these dreadful times we cannot tell if we may live from one moment to another, and I should not like to die, or have you die, without my telling and you hearing all my gratitude. For I do assure you, Sir Norman,' said the lady, lifting her dark eyes with the prettiest and most bewitching earnestness, "'that I am grateful, though I cannot ex find words to express it. "'Madame, I would not listen to it if you would, "'for I have done nothing to deserve thanks. "'I wish I could tell you what I felt "'when Armiston told me you were alive and safe. "'You are very kind, but pray do not call me Madame. "'Say, Leoline.' "'A thousand thanks, dear Leoline,' exclaimed Sir Norman, "'raising her hand to his lips and quite beside him with ecstasy.' "'Ah, I did not tell you to say that,' she cried, with a gay laugh and a vivid blush. "'I never said you were to call me dear.' "'It arose from my heart to my lips,' said Sir Norman, with thrilling earnestness and fervid glance. "'For you are dear to me, dearer than all the world beside.' The flush grew a deeper glow on the lady's face, but, singular to relate, she did not look the least surprised or displeased, and the hand he had feloniously purloined lay passive and quite contented in his. "'Sir Norman Kingsley is pleased to jest,' said the lady in a subdued tone, and with her eyes fixed pertinaciously on her shining dress, 
for he has never spoken to me before in his life. That has nothing to do with it, Maylene. I love you as devotedly as if I had known you from your birthday, and, strange to say, I feel as if we had been friends for years instead of minutes. I cannot realize at all that you are a stranger to me. Leoline laughed. Nor I, though, for that matter, you are not a stranger to me, Sir Norman. Am I not? How is that? I have seen you go past so often, you know, and Prudence told me who you were, and so I need... I used, hesitating and glowing to a degree before which her dress paled. Well, dearest, said Sir Norman, getting from the positive to the superlative at a jump and diminishing the distance between them, you need to, what? To watch for you, said Leoline in a sly whisper, and so I have got to know you very well. My own darling, and, oh, Leoline, may I hope, dare I hope, that you do not altogether hate me? Leoline looked reflective, though her bleak eyes were sparkling under their sweeping lashes. Why, no, she said demurely, I don't know as I do. It's very sinful and improper to hate one's fellow creatures, you know, Sir Norman, and therefore I don't indulge in it. Ah, you are given to piety, I see. In that case, perhaps, you are aware of a precept commanding us to love our neighbors. Now, I'm your nearest neighbor at present, so, to keep up a consistent Christian spirit, just to be good enough to say you love me? Again, Leoline laughed, and this time the bright, dancing eyes beamed, and their sparkling darkness fell upon him. I'm afraid your theology is not very sound, my friend, and I have a dislike to extremes. There is a middle course between hating and loving. Suppose I take that. I will have no middle courses, either hating or loving it must be. Leoline, Leoline, bending over her and imprisoning both hands this time, do say you love me. I am captive in your hands, so I must, I suppose. Yes, Sir Norman, I do love you. Every man hearing that for the first time from a pair of loved lips is privileged to go mad for a brief season, and to go through certain maneuvers much more delectable to the enjoyers than to society at large. For fully ten minutes after Leoline's last speech there was profound silence, but actions sometimes speak louder than words, and Leoline was perfectly convinced that her declaration had not fallen on insensible ears. At the end of that period, the space between them on the couch had so greatly diminished that the ghost of a zephyr would have been crushed to death trying to get between them, and Sir Norman's face was fairly radiant. Leoline herself looked rather beaming, and she suddenly and without provocation burst into a merry little peal of laughter. Well, for two people who were perfect strangers to each other half an hour ago, I think we have gone on mark remarkably well. What will Armiston and Prudence say, I wonder, when they hear this? They will say what is the truth, that I am the luckiest man in England. Oh, Leoline, I have never thought it was in me to love anyone as I do you. I am very glad to hear it. But I knew that it was in me long before I ever dreamed of knowing you. Are you not anxious to know something about the future Lady Kingsley's past history? It will all come in good time. It is not well to have a surfeit of joy in one night.
I do not know that this will add to your joy, but it had better be told and be done with at once and forever. In the first place, I presume, I am an orphan, for I have never known father or mother, and I have never had any other name but Leoline. So Armiston told me. My first recollection is of Prudence. She was my nurse and governess, both in one, and we lived in a cottage by the sea. I don't know where, but a long way from this. When I was about ten years old, we left it and came to London and lived in a house in Cheapside for five or six years, and then we moved here. And all this time, Sir Norman, you will think it strange, but I never made any friends or acquaintances, and knew no one but Prudence and an old Italian professor who came to our lodgings in Cheapside every week to give me lessons. It was not because I disliked society, you must know, but Prudence, with all her kindness and goodness, and I believe she truly loves me, has been nothing more or less all my life than my jailer. She paused to clasp a belt of silver brocade fastened by a pearl buckle close around her little waist, and Sir Norman fixed his eyes upon her beautiful face with a powerful glance. "'Knew no one? That is strange, Leoline. Not even the Count L'Etrange. Ah, you know him?' she cried eagerly, lifting her eyes with a bright look. "'Do, do tell me who he is.' "'Upon my honor, my dear,' said Sir Norman, considerably taken aback, "'it strikes me you are the person to answer that question. "'If I don't greatly mistake, somebody told me you were going to marry him.' "'Oh, so I was,' said Leoline, with the utmost simplicity. "'But I don't know him, for all that. "'And more than that, Sir Norman, I do not believe his name is Count L'Etrange any more than mine is.' "'Precisely my opinion, but why, in the name of—no, I'll not swear, but why were you going to marry him, Leoline?' Leoline half pouted and shrugged her pretty pink satin shoulders. "'Because I couldn't help it, that's why. He coaxed and coaxed, and I said no and no and no, until I got tired of it. Prudence, too, was as bad as he was.' until between them I got about distracted and at last consented to marry him to get rid of him. My poor persecuted little darling, oh, cried Sir Norman with a burst of enthusiasm, how I should admire to have Count L'Etrange here for about ten minutes just now. I would spoil his next wooing for him or I am mistaken. No, no, cried Leoline, looking rather alarmed. You must not fight, you know. I shouldn't at all like either of you to get killed. Besides, he has not married me, and so there's no harm done. Sir Norman seemed rather struck by that view of the case, and after a few moments' reflection on it, came to the conclusion that she knew best, and settled down peaceably again. Why do you suppose his name is not Count L'Etrange? he asked. For many reasons. First, he is disguised wears false whiskers, mustache, and wig, and even the voice he uses appears assumed. Then Prudence seems in the greatest awe of him, and she is not one to be easily awed. I never knew her to be in the slightest degree intimidated by any human being but himself, and that mysterious woman La Masque. Ah, uh, you know La Masque, then? Not personally, but I have seen her as I did you, you remember, with an arch glance, and like you, being once seen is not to be forgotten. Sir Norman promptly paid 
her for the compliment in Cupid's own coin. Little flatterer, I can almost forgive Count Letrange for wanting to marry you, for I presume he is only a man and not quite equal to impossibilities. How long is it since you first knew him? Not two months. My courtship, said Leoline with a gay laugh, seemed destined to be of the shortest. He saw me one evening in the window and immediately insisted on being admitted, and after that he continued coming until I had to promise, as I have told you, to be the Countess Letrange. He cannot be much of a gentleman, or he would not attempt to force a lady against her will. And so, when you were dressed for your bridal, you found you had the plague? Yes, Sir Norman, and horrible as that was, I do assure you, I almost preferred it to marrying him. Leoline, tell me how long it is since you have known me. Nearly three months, said Leoline, blushing again, celestial rosy red. And how long have you loved me? Nonsense! What a question! I shall not tell you. You shall. You must. I insist upon it. Did you love me before you met the Count? Out with it. Well, then, yes, cried Leoline desperately. Sir Norman raised the hand he held in rapture to his lips. My darling, but I will reserve my raptures, for it is growing late, and I know you must want to go to rest. I have a thousand things to tell you, but they must wait for daylight. Only I will promise, before parting, that this is the last night you must spend here. Leoline opened her bright eyes very wide. Tomorrow morning, went on Sir Norman impressively and with dignity, you will be up and dressed by sunrise, and shortly after that radiant period I will make my appearance with two horses, one of which I shall ride and the other I shall lead. The one I lead you shall mount, and we will ride to the nearest church and be married without any pomp or pageant. And then Sir Norman and Lady Kingsley will immediately leave London, and in Kingsley Castle, Devonshire, will enjoy the honeymoon and blissful repose till the plague is over. Do you understand that? Perfectly, she answered with a radiant face. And agree to it? You know I do, Sir Norman, only... Well, my pet, only what? Sir Norman, I should like to see Prudence. I want Prudence. How can I leave her behind? My dear child, she made nothing of leaving you when she thought you were dying. So never mind Prudence, but say, will you be ready? I will. That is my good little Leoline. Now give me a kiss, Lady Kingsley, and good night. Lady Kingsley dutifully obeyed, and Sir Norman went out with a glow in his heart like a halo round a full moon. End of chapter 9